Welcome here to McIver Church. We are so glad to be able to gather here together this morning to come in from the cold, to be warmed in this community, reminded of who our God is and who he calls us. This morning is what is known as World Fellowship Sunday. How many of you were like, oh yeah, I'm going to church on World Fellowship Sunday. (laughs) But you're here and it's actually kind of a big deal. On this morning, we intentionally recognize the interdependence we have within a global family of Anabaptist followers of Jesus. We're part of a big family of following Jesus together. Hopefully you noticed the map in the foyer that you walked past this morning. 
that draws our attention to this span of the Spirit's work. It reminds us that there are over two million people who have been baptized into this family, even while standing in 86 different countries around the world. This big and beautiful body extends beyond the world's barriers and boxes of us and them. And in our imaginations, we can zoom in from this expansive view of God's mission map, pinching and spreading our fingers again and again until into view comes 200 McIver Avenue. There we are. We're on the map. And it is here that God has gathered a peculiar people, a people who is still in process with real differences and even history among them yet believing still that they are joining Jesus in the renewal of all things. Did you know that all of that is happening today and here this morning? So with all of this in mind, let's engage now in our weekly practice of passing the peace of Christ. But as we do that this morning, I'd like us to use some slightly different words. I want you to find someone, and maybe it's worth thinking for a moment about who that person could be. And assure them, God's love is bigger than all of our differences. So find that person and say to them, God's love is bigger than all of our differences. Can we do that this morning? Let's take a minute to do that. <laughs> Thing to see. And it's, it's beautiful for us to see each other and declare God's love, looking right into each other's faces, lives, and stories. Our call to worship this morning will appear on the screen with a part in bold font uh, for all of us to join our voices together in unity. So let's, let's bring our hearts into these words. Though we may be inclined to brag, let us come together with humility how good a thing it is when all of God's people live together in unity. Though we may be tempted to use harsh words, let us come together with gentleness. How good a thing it is when all of God's people live together in unity. Though we may want everything to happen quickly, let us come together with patience. How good a thing it is when all of God's people live together in unity. Though the world around us often encourages hate, let us come together in love. How good a thing it is when all of God's people live together in unity. In humility, gentleness, patience, love, and unity. Let us worship the God who has called us together. So we'll do that now. I'll invite the kids to come forward and help lead us up at the front here with instruments. And the rest of us will stand and let's join our voices to worship.
wherever you have come today, wherever you may be on your faith journey, I believe that God meets you there. And if you're not quite there yet, then there are a number of people here who can believe that and who can walk alongside of you. Because when we come together as this community, God works through all of that messiness with us. Because he is that foundation, and he's the one who anchors us, grounds us, and who gives us hope. So this morning, I pray that we all might find some peace, some encouragement, some comfort, and some rest today.
Thank you, kids, for helping lead us in worship this morning, and I hope you have a great time. It's supervised playtime. You can head off that way now. Uh, as we uh, continue in our service, I just want to draw our attention to the series that we're in right now. If we're remembering, it's a series called How to Read the Bible. Very clear, very specific. You know what you're coming for. And this morning, our theme is reading the Bible in community. We have a guest speaker with us, Paul Dirksen, who is a professor at Canadian Mennonite University. And he's going to bring a sermon to us this morning, but as well, it's meant to help draw us into practicing how to read the Bible, and especially how to read the Bible in community. That that's something very significant to how we, as Mennonite brethren, followers of Jesus, read the Bible. Uh, throughout this series, we're taking a look at this model, which is uh, it's just a helpful guideline to remind us of some of the values and practices we hold of how we approach the Bible and what is important as we continue to talk about what we believe about, how we read the Bible in our day and age. These are some of the important ingredients. So this morning, we want to zoom in on community and the importance of community, that we don't read the Bible in isolation, but we're actually part of a people, a people throughout history, a people around the globe, but also a local body of community where we look to the scriptures together and we hear God's voice as we're rooted in community. So Paul is going to help us to get into that topic later today. And as well, I'll remind you that we have the Q&R phone. So if you want to text in a question about that, you can find the number on the back of your bulletin. And if you open your bulletin, you'll find information on a lot of things going on in and around our church. 
Uh, first off, I want to remind you of that yellow bin that everyone walks past when they come into church. What is that bin about? It's our harvest food bin. It's not a garbage can. It's meant to put uh, non-perishable food items into, and we want to make this a regular practice of our church. It's part of our offering. When we come to church, we bring food for that bin, and we're very grateful for the ministry of our Harvest Food Bank outreach that happens here twice a month. So we want to continue to stock those hampers, so we encourage people to fill up that bin. As well, Finder's Feast begins again in two weeks. This is another way that McIver Church is feeding people, that God is feeding people through our church. So we gather together for a potluck meal on Wednesday nights, and we have a variety of breakout groups following that. And this, again, has just been a great way of building community within and beyond our church. So I hope everyone is considering coming out to this semester that starts in February, Wednesday nights, and goes through March. Uh, So there are different things beginning for that, different ways you can get involved. You can sign up in the foyer this morning. Uh, You might be interested in working with kids and youth. There's a specific training event for that you can find information about. As well, there's a group called Wind Farm. And uh, that's just uh, a group focused on discipleship, becoming uh, deeper followers of Jesus and seeing the call on our lives to invite others to do the same. That's going to be hosted by Paul and Arlene Craker. Uh, Paul's the guy with the backwards bike, if we remember him. So you might want to come check that out as well. Uh, Store X is coming up. We've heard a lot of information about that. And again, reminding people this is for all ages, and it's just two nights. It's just this bite-sized experience, but it's a great way to engage in mission in our local context. You don't need to fly anywhere exotic. Right here in our city, God is at work, and especially drawing community into that work. So it's, it's been a great thing we've enjoyed over many years, participating in SOAR. Uh, come speak with one of the pastors if you're interested in that. And lastly, uh, if you are wanting to go on the men's retreat, uh, you can sign up for that in the foyer. Speak with Rodney Badgley, who's going to stick up his hand. He's an organizer for that. That's coming up soon, so you'll want to check that out. So now as we move into a time of prayer, I want us to keep this in our minds and on our hearts, this community, this global family that we are a part of, and even the challenge of community, because it's not all roses, but there's a call on our lives to grow deeper into this way of love, following Jesus, especially with the real people he's placed us among. So let's keep that on our minds as we enter into a time of prayer. King Jesus, the one who taught and sent his followers to love neighbors as much as self. This morning we bring our hearts before this call. We consider the neighbors you have placed us among who are spread across the world. As tensions rise and our fears of World War III fall right into the schemes of power and violence, Would you awaken your people of peace? Instill in us the imagination of your kingdom. Turn us around into deeper trust in your way. Now in silence, would we hear your voice through the voices of these neighbors?
Here are the neighbors you have placed us among who are citizens of this country. We are amazed at the peace and prosperity that is so popular in our land, but as we pay attention, we also see deep pain. Would you call us to tend to this pain and especially prioritize the stories of this land's first peoples? As you continue to bring more and more waves of people to these shores, would you empower your church with radical hospitality that celebrates the image of God in all? Now, in silence, would we hear your voice through the voices of these neighbors? And we consider the neighbors you have placed us among who are situated nearby, right around us. Thank you for the precious gift of presence. It's real people with names, faces, and stories, annoyances, offenses, and smells that you have given to us so that we would learn how to love. So by your grace, help us to open our lives to these people in our workplaces, schools, our church, and even our homes. Now in silence, would we hear your voice through the voices of these neighbors. King Jesus, the Word who became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, as you continue to dwell here among us, transform our hearts and minds so that the word neighbor would increasingly come to mean beloved. Amen. And so we continue to open up our lives to live generously because of the grace of God that flows in and through our lives. And that's a big part of what we do next as we participate in financial offering. So the ushers are going to come now to receive that, and we remind ourselves with these words, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Let's say that one more time to remind ourselves. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. May he bless and use our offering this morning. Oh 
Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Luke, and I've been going here for the last couple of years with my wife, Jessica. And uh, recently, I was asked by Denver to share a little bit about the gift of Scripture in my life. Scripture reading and spending time with God is, at least for me, something that I struggle with. And I know that for a lot of you, it's something that in the busyness of life, we can sometimes forget about, and we can sometimes push it off to the side. As a high school teacher, January is a busy month for me. Endless deadlines, tasks, marking, and of course the struggle to finish my courses with some form of clarity and meaning as students rush out and start thinking about exams. So needless to say, I find it really difficult to integrate scripture into my life. And recently, as sort of January is kind of waited upon us, um, I find it's really just more apparent now about that I've let the business of life kind of get in the way of receiving Jesus on a regular basis. Now, working at a Christian high school, it's easy for me to kind of receive Jesus because in order to preach to my students, I need to spend time in prayer. So I take care of that. But, but I just find it's difficult just outside of school and outside of the commitments of my work to really be intentional and spend time with God. So over the last few months, I've sort of been praying about this desire to read Scripture more regularly and pray more diligently. And I've been looking for this really practical, or some real practical way, of integrating Jesus into my daily life. And then I found something about a month ago. And uh, I'm driving, and I forget where I was going at the time, but I'm listening to CHVN. And, uh, you know, this ad, this radio ad came on for this app called Through the Word. And it's an app that you can get on your phones. Maybe some of you have heard of it. And uh, it's a Bible app that lets you listen to the Word. So basically listen to pre-recorded Scripture, just basically reading you Scripture. But more importantly, what I like about this app is that then there are pastors that are in the app that then preach on that Scripture. And, uh, and you know, they give you insight about how you can integrate that specific Scripture um, into your daily life. And over the last two weeks in particular, as sort of this busyness of January has sort of just waited upon me, I found myself really diving into God's Word in this really simple way. While sitting in traffic, driving to and from work, the things that I can't avoid doing, I'm listening to Scripture. It's the easiest thing to turn it on and just to listen and receive. There's nothing special, there's nothing new about what I'm doing. I'm simply just receiving Jesus and making time for that in a part of my day that I would normally just waste. I would sit there and just listen to the CHB and advertisements for Mr. Lube is what I would listen to. And here's the brilliance of this. Because driving to work and sitting in traffic is already a part of my daily routine, this active listening to Scripture every morning has very quickly and without much effort become part of my daily routine. I'm sure it's true for you, but for me, I find that whenever I set a goal to do something, if that goal is difficult to achieve, I tend not to do it. And so this idea of integrating scripture into my daily life by listening while I'm sitting in traffic, it's this really simple way of receiving Jesus, and there's not much work that I need to do because I already have to do this thing, sit in traffic. So recently, one of the things that has sort of been impressed on me through my daily car devotions, as I've since called them, is this idea of enjoying your season. And forgetting about the things that we don't have control over, and just appreciating each moment. And the blessing that that moment 
is for us. It's easy to appreciate the good moments of life. It's really easy to kind of absorb those and thank God for those amazing moments. But I find it's difficult to appreciate the trials and difficult moments that life gives us. And one thing that I've sort of learned and that God has sort of kind of oppressed onto me is that although we may not appreciate those trials and those difficult moments in life in the moment, they allow us to receive God's grace and remind us that God is always with us in the trials, in the good times, and the bad times, that God is always with us. So my encouragement to you is this. If you find yourself saying, I want to read scripture more regularly. I want to be more intentional with God. You're listening to Denver about reading scripture and reading the Bible, and you're like, I want to do that. I really encourage you, if you're like, if you're super busy, and you're like me, where free time is not necessarily that readily available, try listening to him through your daily commute. That app. It's a really good idea. This morning's scripture comes from Acts 15, verses 1 to 29. Acts 15, verses 1 to 29. You can find that in your Pew Bibles on page 843, 843 at the bottom right of the page. It's under the heading, The Council at Jerusalem. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men of Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia, and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers, who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, stood up and insisted, The Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take, them, take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, Afterward I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. 
And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Then the apostles and the elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and for us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. This is the word of the Lord. May the peace of Christ be with you. Just a word or two of introduction. Uh, my, I teach at CMU, as has been said. Uh, my wife, Julie, is a pastor at the River East Church, or a fellow MB church. Um, so over there, I'm known as uh, Julie's husband um, and play, uh, play that role as the pastor's spouse there, which I embrace uh, Enthusiastically, We have three daughters, uh, Cecily and Hannah and Greta. They're all in university, and we hope they become wealthy so that we can enjoy our retirement years in a comfortable way. Some years ago, we were living in Ontario as a family, and I found myself in a theological discussion with a friend at the Huther Hotel in Waterloo. That night, we solved a lot of the world's issues, as we often did, not quite all of them, but regarding some topic or another, my friend finally proclaimed, you're probably right that the church, that the Bible says so and so, but I don't care. Uh, and it doesn't matter to me what the Bible says. This was a clarifying moment in our relationship and in our deliberations. We still could and did ag agree or disagree about things depending on the topic, but now at least it was clear that we had differing views on how important the teaching of the Bible was on those matters. And my assignment for this morning is not to provide a convincing argument for the importance and authority of the Bible in this church. I assume that I'm on solid ground, assuming that the Bible is taken seriously here, so seriously that you're spending a lot of time these days working through questions around understanding and living out the teachings of the Bible. It's my task, if I understood Denver correctly, to discuss a community hermeneutic, that is to say, in some way thinking together with you about the matters such as the complexity of reading together, about mutual submission to each other and to the Bible, and ultimately God, of course, and then finding together an understanding of the text that might shape our Christian lives as a church, even if we don't agree on the meaning of a text. 
And as has been displayed, at least part of the impetus for this initiative is the MB interpretive model presented at this recent conference in fall. The material presented there included two things, a model and a method, and both of those included the community as important. The model includes three dimensions, as you recall, the Bible, community, and spirit. In the method section, the role of the church as a community is explicitly mentioned again, this time in terms of explicitly applying the Bible. How does, asks the a method, how does the Spirit guide the community in its discernment and application of the Bible's meaning? And it should be noted, if you read through the material from that conference carefully, that the language is always collective. It uses terms such as we, us, our, and so on. In other words, the way that the interpretive task is described there resists atomistic individualism that functions only as an assertion of a rational of a radical rationalistic autonomy. And all of this, it seems to me, is, uh, is a good thing. It's on the right track. So the community, just to establish the basis here, the community is important, we think, in developing an understanding of the scriptures. And yet it seems to me that the Bible is just a bit coy when it comes to how this might be the work of the church. How should we do this? In one of the most well-known and perhaps most quoted verses in the Bible about the Bible, St. Paul says to Timothy, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Now the thing to notice here about Paul's assertion regarding inspiration is that he doesn't give much of a clue as to just how scripture can function in that way, for training, for example. He just says that that it does. So in passages such as this and others, we often get precious little explicit guidance in how the church community can go about our task of understanding and living out the scriptures. It's this dynamic, and it must be said this ambiguity, that often drives me to consider the book of Acts more broadly, and especially our passage for today from chapter 15. I just want to say how much I appreciate the patient reading of that long passage as part of the worship service. It's interesting for us, I think, to ask whether this story, Acts 15, would fit into our current model and method. The chapter, as you know, describes what's referred to as the Council of Jerusalem, at least by people who insert subtitles into the text. The early church is experiencing yet another sharp division internal to its own life as it tries to figure out what it means to be the church, a process that the church will never get beyond, by the way. But here in Acts 15, the division has to do with the question summarized something like this. Do Gentiles have to become Jews before they can become Christians and be part of the community? Paul and Barnabas head to Jerusalem. The fledgling church takes up this very important issue. They try to understand the will of God, and they work through these matters as a community. And the account in Acts 15 brings very interesting dynamics to view. For example, we see lots and lots of discussion. We observe that there is no one central leader or figure, but a number of different people take up the task of providing guiding speeches, at least the ones that are recorded for us. We're told that there's a lot of silent listening, especially when the people gathered there are being told of God's work. In other words, when silence is finally broken, 
It's broken in order to hear stories about God's work. In order to figure out what to do here, they look back at how they understand God to have been working previously in their midst. In addition, these Christians, who didn't think of themselves as Christians yet, gathered in Jerusalem and read the Old Testament together and commented a bit on a a brief portion from the prophetic writings. And eventually, as we all know, they came to a communal decision or conclusion, and namely, we shouldn't be too hard, we shouldn't make it too hard for Gentiles to become followers of Christ, or as it says in the passage, from turning to God. Then what's really interesting is they communicate that decision by writing a letter and then sending it around. This is not a creed. It's not a position paper. It's not a letter, not an article in the Herald, those sorts of things, but it is a letter in the hands of people who can be trusted. And the tone of the letter, to me, has always been intriguing because it's framed in the following way. And I want you to notice this tone, as no doubt you did during the reading. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. All of this, this process, this conclusion, this distribution, this dissemination of this conclusion resulted in changed behavior and belief in the church. It guided and shaped the church. And then in a a part of the passage that we didn't read, one of the results of all this was a huge disagreement between two of the key figures in the Jerusalem Council, resulting in a parting of the ways, as you know, between Paul and Barnabas. Well, all of this is very interesting, and it seems to me that the church over time has often found itself in situations that are quite similar. We face difficult questions, and then we seek to find our way together to obedience and indeed to have our lives shaped even while we try to understand the purposes of God. We don't stop obeying until we reach a conclusion. Now, I'm going to ask you to allow me a bit of a historical leap about 500 years back to our early Anabaptist forebears who found themselves in very similar situations. All kinds of questions uh, they were trying to uh, deal with, as did all kinds of other reformers. As you know, in the Reformation of the 16th century, the institutional authority of the Roman Catholic Church was being resisted, even rejected. When you do that, when you make that move, uh, it's significant, but it's not always clear what you should do next. When you resist one thing, it's not always clear how to be constructive. I'm reminded here of an early Anabaptist named Conrad Grable, who suggested in a letter that we still have, which was written actually before the Anabaptist movement became a thing, um, suggested in this letter that uh, unlike other people who weren't quite as faithful as he and his friends, he and his companions were committed to, and I quote his letter, pure and clear scripture. He's writing to Thomas Munzer. That claim sounds fantastic, right? Who, who, which one of us wouldn't want to commit ourselves to pure and clear uh, scripture? But the obvious problem, and it became obvious even within his letter, was that others who are committed to the same thing, pure and clear scripture, put forward fundamentally different understandings of pure and clear scripture. In other words, a shared commitment to pure and clear scripture did not result in pure and clear agreement. Would that it were different. In fact, a quick glance at the situation in early Anabaptism, the Reformation more broadly, reveals significantly a lot of instability. You'd think people committed to the pure and clear word of God 
would be able to get themselves together, no? Susan Schreiner, in an absolutely wonderful book entitled Are You Alone Wise?, indicates by the title of her book a question that circulated quite a lot in those early 16th century days of ferment. So if someone, let's say Martin Luther, rejected the institutional authority of the church and then put forward his own interpretation of some passage, there were lots of people around who then were quick to ask guys like Martin Luther, are you alone wise? Are you the only one who knows what this means? And so, the result of resisting the institutional authority of the Roman Catholic Church, the magisterium, was not certainty and clarity, like you one, one might expect, but rather a new level of instability and a search for certainty, a search for clarity that had to take place in the face of these new freedoms and new responsibilities. In another related book, Brad Gregory, um, very, very interesting book, The Unintended Reformation, says the following about this, uh, this uh, process of trying to find uh, stability after you reject institutional authority. Empirically, this is Gregory's work here, empirically and historically, rival assertions of direct revelation from God only intensify the condition that they are intended to settle. An insistence on the reality of the Spirit's action on the believer's heart, or a claim of substantively new divine revelation, or recourse to the authority of God's direct influence, intensified the problem it was meant to resolve. And Gregory goes on to complain that this leads in, the, in our current era uh, to what he calls the kingdom of whatever. People can just believe whatever they want. Right? But you take his point, right? If there's disagreement, are you alone wise? Are you alone wise? Are you alone wise? Whenever you add a layer of something on which you now are going to say, yes, I am wise. For example, the work of the Spirit, or new divine revelation, or the authority of God's word. The adding of those layers only intensifies the problem of disagreement. And yet, despite the realities of these disagreements and ambiguities and lack of certainty, I want to say that this is the way that Scripture actually sets our agenda. We, we, we might call this a certain functional kind of clarity rather than a conclusive clarity. We have enough to live our lives by. The waters are muddy, but they are navigable. Perhaps I could put it another way. Interpreting and understanding the Bible should be seen as a mystery that is intelligible, understandable, but not ultimately comprehensible. Interpretable, but not, as it were, containable. Allowing for the possibility of spiritual meaning without excessive, exaggerated certitude. This is Gary Kucher's work. So, intelligible, interpretable, not containable. The possibility of real meaning without excessive, exaggerated certitude. That, I want to suggest, is what community hermeneutics can give to the church. Let me press a bit further and talk about community interpretation and hermeneutics explicitly. I do want to argue that interpreting the Bible together as the body of Christ is a calling. We're actually called to do that. But the obedience to, to that calling does, in fact, not guarantee 
a final once-for-all conclusion which is absolute, stands for all time, no matter where or when. Good interpretation includes social science, history, cultural theory, attention to language, and other factors. But no combination of any such methods or techniques can carry the freight of community attention to the Bible. In addition, community interpretation will not, cannot, and in fact should not produce a fully settled church. A church that has come to the end of a discussion, a church that reads for the purpose of settling things once and for all, of solidifying identity, of enhancing cohesion, of locking down conclusions. Put another way, reading in the community is not a calling to mastery of the text. In fact, faithful reading of the Bible as a community relinquishes the willed mastery of the text. Why is this the case? It's because of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel is, can be and ought to be as much a destabilizing feature of the life of the church as it is a factor in its cohesion and continuity. When we read the Bible as Christians with a posture of openness and humility and mutual understanding with which we are being encouraged to do by our conference, we are constantly exposed to interruption. We might say that the Bible is the interceptive word of God, catching us in our ways and calling us to reconsider them in perpetuity. If that's true, as I'm suggesting it is, then community hermeneutics and interpretation doesn't close things down, but it opens them up to new ways of living and believing, to change, to conversion, to growth. Those are the kinds of things that happen when we hear God's voice and respond in obedience. So the church, as an interpretive community, seeks to be a hearing church. I think that's in large part what's on display in Acts 15, but not only there. The church is trying to hear God's voice. I'm tempted to argue here, because of that assertion that I'm making, that we use the language of reading rather than the language of hermeneutics or even interpretation. The conference didn't ask me for my opinion. That's what it would have been. Let's not use that language. When we use those latter terms, hermeneutics and interpretation, we run the risk of focusing on the activity of the human subject, of you and me, when in fact the preoccupation of the church community is, in, is God. The emphasis is always on God's communication with us, and one of the channels of communication that God has given us is the reading of the scriptures, an act that shapes us, which has its way with us. And if that's true, then the most important part of interpreting Scripture is, in fact, the reading of the Scriptures as part of public worship. And if reading the Bible shapes us as a community, we should pay a lot of attention to reading it as a communal practice. What if our emphasis on communal hermeneutics paid much more attention to this dimension of placing ourselves under the influence of the Scripture? Taking large chunks of time in our worship services to read the Bible. The shaping power of simply listening to the Bible being read is hard to overstate. And it's described quite beautifully in Susan Hill's wonderful novel, Black Sheep. 
Let me read you two brief passages. One is about Ted as a young boy having to listen to his grandpa, Reuben, who was kind of a lazy guy, but one of the things he did was to read the Bible out loud in his house, whether someone was listening or not. Here's Ted as a young man. His days were shaped by the sound of his grandfather's voice speaking the Bible. He knew the cadences of the verses, the rise and fall, the occasional flash and spark, the monotonous, even rumble of the lists of kings and prophets, the thunder of the voice of God. His days and time before he slept ran in tune with the verses, and though he rarely understood most of what he heard, he absorbed the spirit and sometimes the sense, and it left its mark on him. In later years, Reuben is ill, Ted is a young man, and we, tables are turned and we now find Ted reading the Bible out loud to his grandpa. Ted read until his grandfather was asleep, lulled by the words as he had been lulled by them as a child. He had never known what they meant and he didn't think he knew now, but that didn't matter. The words were, listen, listen to this description, the words were the background of his entire growing up and woven into his life like another's skin. He realized that he had missed nothing of home during his time at the farm, but he had noticed the spaces where the words had been. It is this shaping power of the reading of the scriptures that is central to community hermeneutics. These days I'm teaching a course at CMU in theological ethics. We're thinking about what it might mean, at least for the first month of this course, we're thinking what it might mean for the church to approach ethics through a liturgical or a worship framework. In an essay that we'll take up this coming Wednesday, if you want to come and join in, it is written by James Fodor, and it is entitled Reading the Scriptures, Rehearsing Identity, Practicing Character. Here he argues that the worship, the liturgical reading of the scriptures, in doing so we are schooled and exercised in the scriptural logic of faith. And I want you to notice that what he's talking about is the reading of it, not some person interpreting it, providing background, or being dramatic about it. The reading, just as was done this morning. In hearing that, we are schooled and exercised in the scriptural logic of faith. We collect, arrange, and position and coordinate the entire spectrum of practices and habits that comprise the Christian life. Reading the Bible can be spiritually transforming and ethically constituting. We don't just appropriate scripture on a mechanical level, namely, looking for a meaning when we read it. Rather, by repeated exposure to and immersion in liturgical readings of the Bible, the gathered faithful begin to acquire a peculiar kind of scriptural competence, which is just another way of saying faithful living, says Fodor. Through the reading and hearing of scripture in church, nothing magical here, we undergo a realignment of our vision and orientation. We become educated, schooled, and trained into a new way of seeing and being. Recently, the MB Herald published a fascinating conversation between two Fresno Pacific Biblical Seminary professors about why and how scripture is read in worship services. Lynn Jost said the following things. I'm just picking out a couple of things he said. Reading the Bible, he said, is hazardous to people's lives and their faith. And that is what reinforces the importance of reading the Bible in community. For people to hear well, we, must, we who read must honor the text. Although important in public speaking, 
Eye contact and using gestures during public speaking, sorry, during Bible reading can become a distraction. The best reading does not call attention to itself with exaggerated expression or dramatic pauses. Letting the text speak is the goal. The key is to honor the text. And then he quotes, as he puts it, M.B. Elder J.B. Taves. The Bible, like a lion, needs no defense. Let it roar. I'm quite taken by that description. The center of the Christian faith, the center of the Christian life, is, of course, the resurrected and living Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God, whom we worship together as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible helps us to shape that worship. You might say it helps us to make Christ audible. And so I conclude with this quotation from Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury. What matters is not our ability to finish our business or to secure consensus, as if Christ would only be audible in that mode. But our readiness to decide to take sides as adult persons and to live with the consequences and cost of that within the disciplines we share with other Christians of openness to the judgment of the Easter mystery and the common discipline above all of reading scriptures in the public sacramental worship of the church should stand as a foundation of hope and hold before us a model of faith. May God grant us the wisdom and discernment we need as we hear the word of God. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.
thank you for singing with us. You can have a seat for a minute. We'll invite Paul back up here. Just getting a, a glance at these questions here. Best one. Um, here's one I think can be understood and helpful. Are there any ground rules you would suggest for those who are engaged in community hermeneutics? So I would say I heard a fair bit from you about the principles of community hermeneutics. Can you take us even more on the ground to any kind of principles that would be helpful, even tips and tricks? Um, what, what comes to mind? Um, I, I don't... I actually don't have any uh, tips and tricks. Um, and I, I don't mean to sound simplistic, but the, the only way that I can answer that question is by saying that you've got to go to church uh, because that's where community hermeneutics take place. And so personal devotion and so on is, is just that. It's personal. It's important. But we're talking about something that is not completely unrelated, but it is substantively different. Right? And so the, the best tip I can give to you uh, about uh, interpreting the Bible in community is uh, you've got to go where that happens. That is, you've got to go to church. Uh, there, there is no, there's no trick to it. So um, if you only remember one thing from this, uh, uh, it's just three words. Uh, go to church. I think you're preaching to the choir here, Paul. We're here. But maybe a helpful invitation for others to say, look, come, show up, come join me in this. Uh, thank you so much for your words to us this morning, Paul. And um, yeah, I think, I hope for all of us, we're more excited, uh, more hopeful to continue to look to the scriptures together and just be in awe of the Spirit's work among us. We're going to continue that this morning uh, as part of our exchange meets in the overflow, as we do every Sunday. But we want to focus in, not just on talking about community hermeneutic, but practicing community hermeneutic. And you don't need to use that phrase, reading the Bible together. And so we want to invite you to come and check that out in just 10 minutes. We'll be getting together there, but we'll also have coffee in the foyer and uh, opportunities for fellowship. Uh, kids and youth, you can head off to your exchange classes and teachers. You can enjoy those this morning as well. But the rest of us, let's stand together and hear a passage of Scripture that will send us forward. This is our benediction this morning, and it comes from Romans chapter 15. Everything written in the scriptures was written to teach us in order that we might have hope through the patience and encouragement which the scriptures give us. And may God, the source of patience and encouragement, enable you to have the same point of view among yourselves by following the example of Christ Jesus, so that all of you together may praise with one voice the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace.